Welcome to the Incubate Podcast, where we feature ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Great, so I'm things. a bit of a fanatic, and uh, today as we're going to have a conversation, we're going to be enjoying uh, amazing tea called Resurrection Bush Tea from Zimbabwe. This tea is legendary, it has all lots, it's got tons of stories around it. They say it's spiritual, they say it's... Um, it's healthy. They say it's uh, all sorts of things. What I know is that today we're going to be having amazing conversations and also having great tea as well. My name is Charlton. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Incubate Podcast, where we're telling the SWT story online. Today I have an amazing guest, and this gentleman, when he speaks, I'm like, wow, you know, I could listen to this guy. All day, every day. He's an amazing man. I have Al Karaki today. And uh, we'll hear a little bit more about him and the work that he's been doing and his amazing insights into where um, Africa should be going in general and, and all of that. So we're going to have this discussion. But before we do that, Al, please allow me just to pour you a cup of resurrection tea in Zimbabwe. Shona, it's called Mufandichimoka. So literally, that it's, it talks about... Um, raising something that is that has died so it's it's literally a resurrection tea i'm hoping this is just gonna resurrect amazing inspiration as we as we have the discussions we're going to be having today thank you so much al for joining and uh welcome to the incubate podcast thank you very much i am so excited to be having you al and i wanted us just to begin you know where i want us to begin to our viewers Al was in a Jackie Chan movie in 1998 uh, called Where Mine. If anybody's watched, if you remember Jackie Chan, who am I? Who am I? So Al was in that particular movie, and I really just want to get started there, Al. Okay. What was the inspiration? What got you into that movie? And what was your experience working with Jackie Chan? Um, everything happened by accident. I think that in my initial part of the career, uh, I was cooking at a Japanese restaurant in Durban. And uh, this big guy walks in, expert steak and everything, and pretty foul move. Uh, so when I asked him, you know, how do you want your steak? He would, uh, he said, but you're not Japanese. And I said, yes, I am, but I'm from Canada. So anyway, I'm here, so what can I do for your steak? And then he told me what it is, and so I cooked it. And then he, he kept looking at me during the course of the meal and said, please come to the other hotel, Marine Parade in Durban in the morning. So I did, didn't know who he was, went into the hotel, three, four hundred people mingling around. It's six o'clock in the morning. Um, and so he grabs me, puts me in a room with 13, 14 other people, and they're all just staring at me. And I thought, what? So hauls me back out and he says, okay, here's the story. I'm Aaron uh, Norris. I am Chuck Norris's brother. Oh, I'm like, whoa. I thought, we were filming in in the Philippines, and the coup happened, so all the film companies, we moved out. But instead of going back to the United States, we stopped in South Africa, and we found the perfect place that looks like Vietnam. So, um, I went to the airport last night. I hired nine actors. Only eight got off the plane. So, he says to the rest, where is Don? Don is a Hawaiian actor. Don got sick in New York and is there, he's not coming. So that's it, so Aaron went ballistic. So that's why he was in such a grumpy mood. But now he says, I don't care what you're being paid or whatever else, you are now going to be the ninth guy. You are part of a Vietnam US squad to protect this village. And that's it, no no more, no, no questions, no nothing, you are there. So from seven in the morning till six at night, I'm out in the field shooting, protecting the village from all these enemies. Well, uh, rolling on tanks and everything else. And um, the whole uh, South African uh, film industry came to see because it was the first big production. And there we are. So we had Michael Dudikoff, we had uh, Chuck and Aaron, everybody come. And they're asking, you know, what do you do and everything and and all this stuff and I said well I live here <gasps> well so this is the time when South Africa was going through its uh, apartheid era and sanctions were the order of the day so what they did and what affected me was for the next 
seven or eight years, I became what they call a red herring. Put an Oriental in the movie and throw the crowd off, the viewers off, yeah. and it works. None of the, the, the movies that I was in got boycotted and um, because people in the U.S. would think, no, there's no Orientals in Africa. I mean, he's, he's an Oriental. This is somewhere <laughs> else. On that basis, and having acted in a whole bunch of movies, um, Jackie Chan came to, to South Africa to film Who Am I? And um, so they called me. I was kind of the only registered Oriental actor. We went in there, did the, the test, and all of a sudden I'm now with him. So I spent a total of four weeks with Jackie Chan. One week in Joburg at the hospital, or we're blowing up hospitals and things like that. <laughs> And then another three weeks down in uh, a place way deep in the Northern Cape in South Africa. Um, and it was an amazing time. I mean, he, what most people don't know is he's illiterate. He cannot read. So when we, all of us actors said, where's the script? Yeah. Benny, the director says, I'm sorry, guys. There's no script. Jackie can't read. So, okay, so we go. We, we pick a place, we make a few things, and we improvise, we shoot, and then we move on to the next one. That's been the story. And um, he's, a, he's an incredibly humble guy. I mean, we had interviews, right? And we're, we are staying at the top part of the hotel. We have air con and TV and all this stuff. He's staying in a big apartment downstairs that has nothing. But when the media came, we all had to join, and we go in there. And he had endless lines of, of, of rope clotheslines. He had about 200 socks, athletic white socks, washed. He washed them and he hung them up to dry. He had a rock thing that he built in the middle of the living room so he could make a fire and, and cook congee, which is kind of this soupy stuff. Uh -huh. And, you know, just things like that. He's the first one to grab the equipment and move from one location to another. Wow. You know, he, he, and he's like that. So I got injured. I won't go into it's the long story, but I got injured. And so when you're injured, the, the, the benefit is for the rest of my shoot, I have lunch with Jackie every day. Oh, we had lunch and we talked about this and that and everything else. And what an incredible experience. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is totally amazing. I mean, Al, where does it start and where does it even end to have excelled in the culinary arts? You have uh, excelled as an actor and as a technologist. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your history of yours. would definitely love to hear a little bit more. Um, well, I was born in Canada, spent most of my time in Vancouver. And uh, my innovation, I think, started um, when I was helping organize um, some what they call freestyle skiing. So freestyle skiing, one of the disciplines is they have a three-meter jump. The idea is to come down the hill as fast as you can, hit the jump, go up into the air, and hopefully land on your feet after somersaults and the rest of all this kind of stuff. I was very lucky. Everything that I did, I managed to land on my feet most of the time. But my my colleagues were started skiing when they were like eight and nine. I didn't start till I was 18, so it was very late. So I realized I didn't have the depth. So I switched from there, from being a competitor to actually putting on the shows. So if you think of, we have a festival here called Bushfire, you know, we have 35,000 people, that thing. So my job was to go around the world and host snow festivals with 100,000 people over the weekend. And they would have these competitions and that type of thing. So that was my first taste of event, large scale event organization. So I had to really have everything sorted, the logistics, the sound, the safety, crowd control, all that type of stuff. Then the, in Vancouver, we had what we call an Expo 86, big world's festival. And this was early, or sorry, late 1900 type things. And so what happened is I put together what we now know as Airbnb. I organized 400 homes, organized the menus, inspected the rooms, and got Vancouver ready for all these people that were supposed to come, which they did, but they got stopped in the border post in the U.S. U.S. and Canada, the border post is, is 20 minutes away from Vancouver. They all stopped there. So the entrepreneur side kicked in. I went and leased 30 big buses, 
and every day we had this convoy of buses ferrying the U.S. people up from Bellingham into Vancouver, putting them into these 400 houses. For three days, uh, we would, the host would feed them, make sure the house was fine, we would transport them to the ferry. We ran at 75% occupancy, the highest that anybody ever did it, that type of thing. From there, I went to Spain because that's when the next one was. I had four years to get ready for this. I got to the border. They said, ah, we know who you are. You cannot come in the country. Can you go into, you to wreck a tourism? You know, I get all this stuff. So I said, no, in fact, if you think I actually helped your tourism, I helped bring people within the places and but anyway, they didn't have any part of it. So I left. Came down to South Africa because I heard that from media that all hell was... And I got here and I was two blocks away when this bomb, the Magoo bomb went off. I said, it was crazy. So I stayed because when I got here in Africa, there was no Sunday shopping. There was no cell phones. There was no McDonald's. There was none of those things that I was used to. I just sat there and said, how does this what? How? opportunity if I stick around long enough I can do all this stuff and sure enough it all started to come through so that was my journey I started a free ad newspaper which now is the largest newspaper in Africa it's gone all over it's big in, in South Africa uh, from there uh, I launched my first off the kitchen table that launched the largest educational technology project in Africa where I ended up uh, uh, teaching for lack of a better word Eight million children, mostly in rural areas, and we would use radio. It's called interactive radio. We had music and sounds. We tied that in with workbooks. Incredibly successful, to the point where the donors, especially USAID, was just true. We became the flagship project for education for USAID. Hillary Clinton became one of the patrons for that project, so it went very successful. From there, I got a call from president's office, President Nubeki at that time, and the uh, deputy minister of finance. We talked about all the things that I did. They asked me, you must be good because you're doing projects, but we can't seem to find out where you steal the money. So, well, I don't do that, sorry. <laughs> on and on we talked, and then she said, we're going to second you. What does that mean? I've never been seconded, you know. She says, no, whatever it is that you're doing, you stop tomorrow morning, you work for the government, you work in finance ministry, um, and uh, you're going to be the, the chief information officer for the South African government and the lead project manager, and that's it. So next day I start, 90-day contract turned into six years. I ended up being the special advisor for nine different departments, telecommunications, housing, water, education, etc. My job is to problem solve. And that's where it all started in Africa. It was problem solving. And as people will tell you, Africa has no shortage of problems. So they all said, ah, you've got a lifetime job here. You can <laughs> do whatever you want. And that's how it's been. So all I've been doing is sorting out problems with, with, with governments, with business, with community, and now it's just getting extreme large-scale stuff. Wow. So that's how it all started, in, anyway. That is incredible. And um, what, what has been your greatest attraction to Africa, though? What has kept you in Africa this long? You, you say to yourself, we do not have a shortage of problems. Yeah, you could as well just have moved back to Canada and just going back home and all that. But it's been so many years. Yeah, now for 20 years. Yes, now, yeah. What has been your greatest attraction? What do you find attractive on the continent? Is there something that I see in Africa are not seeing that at a sudden? Well, I, I think that is, for me, I like change. Many people, the majority of people don't like change. They're comfortable in their own ways and whatever, but I find that whenever there's change happening, then there is opportunity. Canada, for example, is doesn't have much change. The systems that are there are set. Everything works. You get passports in 45 minutes. <laughs> that kind of thing. 
but here, boy, it's, it's three months. So now I have to get all that. So there's obviously inefficiencies. And that's why I base everything on is yeah. I look for inefficiencies and then I try to make it better. Damn. So Africa does have a inefficiencies. Things work, but they're just very slow. Yeah. So all I'm doing is changing it, accelerating it, making it better. Yeah. I mean, it's awful in the sense where people here have to take all different kinds of transport to get a piece of paper to get a passport or a driver's license or a grant or a social grant, things like that. I mean, that's, that's really tough. So thus we are getting involved in, in connecting. Um, we're connecting all the schools, 838 schools in Eswatini by satellite so that they can access the internet, they can communicate with each other. Um, and it's all those types of things. So we're carrying that program throughout Africa because you know, technology is, is coming on to South Africa very, or Africa very quickly. And all of a sudden we're going to be wired in a decade. We will be the largest country in the world. We will surpass China. We have the biggest numbers of youth. So when you combine youth and, and that amount of people, and when you scale using technology, it's massive so this is the future africa is the future africa. that's what appeals to me most is i'm part of creating the future for this yeah. continent that is brilliant i'm just thinking as we are looking especially at um the post-covid no uh scenario life after covid um within africa itself and and all these things that are happening globally now with uh the war in, in between Russia and Ukraine and all the instabilities. Look at what's happening in global economies right now. Many countries are on the verge of, of recessions and, and all of that. Where does Africa stand in all of this? And what do you think are the important things that Africa needs to, to be looking at in view of, of all these calamities going on around the world? As we're going forward um, as Africa, one of the critical things that, I, that you think should... Um, be your priority to governments and what needs to be to be happening. Mm. Sure. <laughs> it, uh, no, but it, it's uh, it's very important to look at that. I mean, you know, one needs to have a visionary stance on where all this you need to think about the future. And and having said all those things and having the kind of I wouldn't say brief, but you know, severe experience with COVID. What COVID has done, and, and I was, you know, I'm obviously not happy with the, the death and everything that came with it, but what it had done, has done is expose the vulnerabilities of our system here in Africa. It shows you that the supply chain is very weak. Maybe it just doesn't even exist, like in agriculture, for example. So we now at least know where we are, but we have very little fiddle. And we need to build all of that. So the biggest thing that seems to be hitting now is, is, is food scarcity. We have 841 million today people in the world who are starving. In Africa, it's 247 million who are starving. And in Eswatini alone, we have 332,000, which is still almost a third of the population. Food scarcity is everywhere. And so if I think, and, and, and all of my effort is motivated by having my son because I can't, I don't want to leave him with this problem that we've caused. <laughs> yeah, but I have to come up with solutions and, and especially with food. I've start, I've done the water one. I now have created and innovated equipment that will produce water anywhere in the world. Lots of it. So on that one, I can sleep at night. I've solved that issue. We can now have water. So that's done. But the, when it comes to food, well, that, that kind of goes along with water. Uh, water's first in the hierarchy, food is second. And so in, in that uh, instance, and, and with what you mentioned, agriculture in Africa, to me, has to be the key. It is the key for feeding not only Africa, but the world. The people from Europe and the U.S. have been calling like crazy, asking the same thing about food. I said, well, maybe the, there's a perception that we 
are the breadbasket of the world, but we're not. We only supply 2% of the world's food, and that's dis it's despicable. Africa needs to reset. It needs to become that breadbasket because we have the land. We have millions of small-scale farmers, which unfortunately have not been uh, given the resources that they need to do that. So what do we have? We, bring, we have a land that is incredibly... Um, uh, chemically killed. I mean, the amount of GMO and, 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 and chemicals in the, in, the, in the land is terrible. We can't grow anymore. We're having to put more fertilizer and more fertilizer. So if anybody said that this was a kind of a mad scheme from the chemical, it, it is. It is. So we need to go back. We need to change all of that. And so the projects that I'm working on, we address climate change. I'm my understanding from the donors and from the institutions is the concept we have called Global Bro is now the largest and the only nature-based solution that actually makes sense. We have the ability to remove billions of tons of CO2 from, from the air. We can do it in time according to 2030 and 2050. But in the meantime, the reset part comes in because I can create, we've estimated, 25 million jobs. We can create low-cost medicine. We can make affordable building material. We can, we have plastic. We're able to create bioplastic, which means that all these plastic bottles and stuff that you see polluting the oceans, we cannot change that so that these plastic objects will biodegrade after three months. So there's that issue of plastic things, for example, like we can create housing material, which is incredibly cheap. And, and the moment that you build with, with what they call hempcrete, it starts to sequest carbon. So besides saving the world from the carbon issue, which is mankind's own creation, and I must say the North, we have not contributed. Africa has contributed very little to emissions. Transport, maybe, but it's, it's not that big. Agriculture, yes, that is a significant. But now we're suffering the most. We are starving the most. We are less of everything because of climate change. We're dealing with weather, and, and, and that's the issue. Weather changes everything. It tells you where and when you can harvest and where and when you can grow food. So if we don't sort out the climate change, and our instability of food is in jeopardy, and we can all... Maybe just start to death. Because I know you're very passionate when we talk about the like industrial hemp, uh, hemp itself, um, hemp-related products. And what's your assessment of uh, the uptake of production of industrial hemp, um, the use of, of hemp in, in Africa? Where's the potential? Which countries are doing well? Is, is there any economic scope for doing this? Because um, I know a couple of African governments seem to be opening up but it really feels like it's a, it's a bit late. What's, what's been going on? Where's been the pushback and where are the opportunities? Black hemp has been around for over a century. And, and, and the mistake that governments made was to combine industrial hemp with marijuana, which is part of the cannabis family. But you and I and 5,000 other people, we could sit in this beautiful place and we could smoke hemp every day. We would never get high because there's not enough of the THC in hemp. Hemp is fiber. Marijuana is buds in hemp. It's not to say we don't want the buds, but the, the use that we need for 25,000 different products is in hemp. Right. Um, and so everybody's had a slow start. Today, today, there's 1.5 million acres spread out over 46 countries in the world for producing hemp. China is being the leader. Canada, U.S., and France are second, third, and fourth. And then there's a whole bunch of other countries. Africa has 12. Uh, but they're just starting. And they're, they're all rushing to cannabis instead of hemp. But hemp is where the real action is where the value-added product is, that type of thing. 
So in all of my presentations, which are growing rather rapidly, yeah. I've, I've had to spend a minute in terms of myth busting. So I have an audience of 400 people and I'll say, we stop, 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 repeat after me. Industrial hemp is not marijuana. Yeah. Say it, people. And so the whole thing is, and, and so I, I'm able to do that. When it comes to investors and, and, and government, it's been not this difficult. They understand that because I said, I need you to go to your search engines and search and find out what I've discovered is the most versatile product in the world. It sequests carbon. It grows much faster than trees. In fact, the harvest time is 120 days. So that means that I can sequest carbon much quicker mm -hmm. than anything else. But it's the byproducts. Where am I going to create all these jobs? First, you've got to plant it. Then you've got to harvest it. Then you've got to manufacture it and change it into whatever. So in our uh, process, we will be getting a lot of land. Uh, there's three countries that have said, here, you can have all this land. We will then seed, seed, seed for the first two years. From there, we will move into um, organic uh, stock, which means we can create unlimited organic fertilizer. So to then go throughout Africa and spread organic fertilizer and regenerate the soil gives us a solid base to grow. So I'm thinking ground zero, day one, this ground is polluted. We need to, we need to fix the soil first. We need to get the water systems. Besides industrial camp, we also have a crop called halophytes. Halophytes is a species, and we have about 400 out of 10,000 species. Halophytes are crops that grow in seawater. And the investors, when they first heard about this, were saying, but how does that relate? And I said, well, I have now access to as much free seawater as ever, because 96% of the world's water is seawater. I don't have to pay for it. I can go and I can pump it out of the sea and put it in the desert, which we're planning to do, and use it. And now I can plant in the desert using seawater. So what does that mean in terms of economical costs? I don't pay for the seawater and I don't pay for the desert. They have said, there's the desert. Help us do something because it's creeping. It's called desert creep. And it's worth losing an acre, I think a second, to the desert creep. So that whole area in the top of Africa, the Horn of Africa, is getting bigger, but we're driving people away. So we've established that we want to build this great green wall, which will stop the advance of the desert and at the same time provide employment and food, build its communities again, and just revitalize. We need to resurrect yes. as, as what you have yeah. here. Yeah. So the, the, the combination of industrial hemp, seacoing products, and that type of thing will make us a success. But that's amazing. Um, I, I just want to draw you back a little bit to speak about issues related to food security. Uh, you, you believe a lot in food sovereignty. You've, uh, in all your innovations, you know, you sit with you in five minutes, you will talk about food, three of those five minutes, and then you can talk about all the other innovations. Agritech, I know you're very passionate also about agritech, food systems in general. What is, what is the connection between production of food in Africa and, and technology? Where do these come together? Where do you see the potential? And uh, what have been some of the exciting things that have been going on um, in your own projects or within the network that you're working with? Yeah. Um, Early this year, I had the uh, honor to, to address the um, World Food Program put on by the United Nations, a planning session, and explain how the use of technology um, can help scale and address food scarcity. So I did that and poof, overwhelmed by responses and all positive. So in the end, as a result of that, we have come up with uh, three or four programs, which we call part of the African growing revolution. Now, the first one is school feeding schemes in Africa, some in Europe and mostly in the United States have collapsed. So what we have come up with is the use of what we call aquaponics and hydroponics. 
So we have designed a system based on a non-electricity rural school, because that's where most of the schools, in our rural areas, they have no electricity. Mm -hmm. So we had to build this system for that. So we have designed, they're responsible for collecting, for example, a thousand two liter plastic bottles, because we use that to create the transport for the water. Mm -hmm. And aquaponics and hydroponics is a soilless system, which means that basically we put plants in the water, we feed the water with nutrients and vitamins as you would with your body, and we run that water through the plants on a continual basis. What happens? The plants grow. And because we use no soil, there's no pesticide. So these are truly organic, healthy food. Lettuce, uh, cucumbers, uh, tomatoes, strawberries, herbs, anything we grow. One of the critical things on that one is that we only use 10% of the water that a traditional farm would use. Traditional farm, the water irrigates those plants, but then it goes into the ground. It, if it comes out, that's an if, there's a good chance that it's contaminated. Mm -hmm. So that water is technically useless. It doesn't help us anymore. In aquaponic system, None of the water escapes. We capture it in tanks and we recycle it like this, right? So we use the same water. We just inject it with organic nutrients. Um, and that's hydroponics. So what we've done, we've designed kits. And every school that comes to us now, we, we, we show them how it works. Mm -hmm. We disassemble the system and they put it back together so we know that they are comfortable with it. Then we turn around and we give them the entire kit of how to start, comes with buckets and nutrients and everything they need to start. They now, uh, we started already, they go back to their schools, they implement that. And we're hoping that the kind of entrepreneurs in that community will say, oh no, but I can, if I expand this, we can, we can feed the community, just not just the school kids, but the community. We're starting to see a little bit of that now, the expansion, they're asking for more kits. And so our second phase would be the introduction of um, hydroponics to aquaponics, which would include uh, fish. Because the, the water where the fish swim in, if you take that water and put it on plants, the plants accelerate. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, the water from the plants goes back to the fish and they accelerate. Well, so now we're able to introduce fish into vegetables. Africa needs that kind of nutrient, yeah. And now we do that, taken one step further. Chickens are very big. We have dis discovered to take the, the manure from chickens, we mix that and distill that into the water with the fish, and everybody's happy. So we've actually created a circular economy, in a sense, where a complete ecosystem. Chickens, vegetables, and fish grow, all thrive under the system. Wow. And we can produce that. So, and, and again, the water is low. So the first thing is a worldwide, uh, well, Africa-wide uh, injection of that technology, basic technology, into all the schools. The second one is geared to be more immediate. All the, and I mean all the large cities in, in Africa, and, and this is also goes to the world, are experiencing hunger and starvation in the city level. Yeah. To get food to the city, there's logistical issues, there's conflict issues, there's yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. And so, again, the, the countries call and say, please help us. We need an idea. So we came up with, which is not a new idea, but it's been perfected as vertical food farms. Now, hydroponics, we would put uh, horizontally. You put them on tables. But with vertical food farms, you take these tubes and you go up to the ceiling. In other words, what we're doing is making use of this area up here. Yeah. We can create 100 to 150 times more food by going up rather than sideways. Same system. In limited space? Limited space. Wow. Making, uh, taking advantage of uh, all this space all that could not been using. Right. And uh, so this saves even in terms of the land area that is useful for the production, because there's also a lot of uh, conflict really around land use. Yes. And 
you know, as you expand um, land for food versus non-food products and right. things like that. So, so yeah, that's that's incredible. Yeah, so we're able to produce a lot of food in a small space. There is a place in Japan which is just a little bit bigger than this. House. Mm -hmm. Produces forty thousand heads of lettuce a day. Wow! Two robots all night. Pick and clean and pluck and change and all this stuff. Yeah. And the next day there's 40,000 <clears throat> lettuce ready for, for sale. People ask about cost. Well, normally if you're in a supermarket type situation, you have to realize that that food has to come from somewhere, usually a farm somewhere remote. So the fuel we pay and when we buy the food, we pay for the fuel to move from farm to market yeah then we have to package it we have to make sure that it's you know got packaging around it in our case with with vertical food farms we are producing in your area right where you live you could walk the rest right so that means we don't have to pay that whatever transport cost yeah we're, we're making the food that you want right there you come with your plastic bag or your box and say, I need fish, I need carrots, I need this, that, and everything else. And we run around and, and we'll pick it off the floor wherever it is. And because uh, there's you know seven-story buildings that we do this, so we go on the right floor, we get your fish, we get your strawberries, we get all the stuff and we need tomatoes. Okay, so with, with the vertical food farms, uh, we have that huge capacity, but the same thing applies. We don't have to spend a lot of time and effort on, on water. Everything is automated. Um, and like I say, the, the cost, uh, um, we can produce that food for the same cost that your supermarket buys it for. Well, so obviously they're not too happy about this, but I said, I'm sorry, but you know, we, we have all got all these starving people. We cannot, you know, for the sake of profit for you. I mean, there's other ways you can make profit. When it comes to food and food scarcity, we have starving people, millions of people. So we need to do that. So we have a medium-term situation solution for the starting at the schools, which will spread. We have short-term situations, which will feed people in the city. And in, in one particular country, they're looking at uh, 500 of these vertical food farms at three cities. And it's one country. It's enormous. And it'll be the largest in the world. And we're very excited about that. Um, just to be able to supply. And, you know, there's Singapore has got 18 of these vertical food farms already because they import nine, everything Singapore has, food, water, all this stuff they imported. Well, so it's just tiny little island. In the United States, every major city has four or five vertical food gardens. Uh, Netherlands, uh, and you see them now on the tops of buildings. So Africa... Actually, last year at least, didn't have one. Well, yet we have all these starving people. So, you know, we've kind of put that together as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And we are now very busy yeah. putting together systems for, for people from homes to the offices. We have a couple of uh, corporate offices who, in, in Johannesburg, who are planning to, to put a huge vertical food farm in their lobby. Wow. And so what happens is that the, the the people who work at this at this company are able to buy fresh vegetables every day from the wall at work and take it home for their families. I mean, Joe, you know, that's yeah, saving water, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that opportunity is is really is really fantastic. Yeah. Um, the the third component is uh, this one is has uh, caused a lot of issues, and um, as I you'll see why we're calling we we've created these things called clean climate teams so clean climate teams are a small group of project managers uh, artificial intelligence we're starting to hire artificial intelligence people integrators uh, environments we put them in what they call the war room so we're saying in every war room which is one in every country and one in every major city in the world there is this group of environmental specialists. Their first job 
is to go out and record who's doing what. There are going to be some companies who are trying very hard and, and environmental reform, and they're putting in systems, smoke filtering on smokestacks and that type of thing. There are other ones who are trying, but they've not got the right technology. Then there's the ones at the bottom or a different separate group, which are also known as greenwashers. They are saying that they're going to do something, but when you actually go and see them, they're not. And they're usually the worst polluters. And I'm not trying to um, um, uh, name them all, but it's a consequence. We have to. We have to indicate to everybody what is the progress in your country, in your city of environmental reform. So. We, we've started that now. Um, it's a massive job, but it's a high-profile job. At the same time, we will then call for solutions. I deal with 160 different engineering companies around the world, and these guys in their basement, in their backyards, have come up with some really fascinating stuff, but they can't get it to market. So this type of exercise allows us to say, here's a problem in Manchester, England, or Houston, United States, or Johannesburg. We need the solution to fix that. And so we do that call to all these engineers, and the solutions will come. I mean, I always say nerds will rule the world. In this case, they will. Yeah, they will say yeah. the word. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so that, that will then start to get the reform going in a, in a, in a proper way. And then the third one is is the hemp project, which is a global project. It is now considered the world's largest. So it's big. It's quite exciting. Yeah, the partnerships that we're creating now, for example, with African youth are just fantastic. Fantastic. So yeah. we're yeah. looking forward to that. You know, I was then actually then going to be getting into talking a little bit about um, innovation in Africa, young Africans. There's a whole conversation going on for us around the the demographic value, mm. spoken a little bit about this, just to say, is, is this a demographic burden? Is it a demographic curse? Because you've got, uh, you've got so much unemployment on the continent. You've got so much skill and, and talent, especially talent, untapped talent. Um, but the opportunities are just not there. And, and what are your views really around African entrepreneurship, tapping into all these emerging opportunities you're speaking about, uh, where tech is meeting with solving problems that we have, like the food question you were talking about, and also the climate crisis that we're currently um, all experiencing at, at the moment. Where do you place African youth in all of this, and, and what do you think the future holds for them? <laughs> Let me start with what I think is the issue. Because if we understand where the block is, then maybe things will happen. And it's a question that comes up every time. As a, as a foreigner, I guess, or whatever, but just been working in Africa, what is the biggest problem? <laughs> analog leaders. We have analog thinking leaders who are not letting go. The digital world is coming. They're running. They're scared. They're closing things down. They're shutting access off. That is our biggest problem. However, the good side of all that is tech is coming yeah. and there's nothing they can do to stop that. Within six months, most of Africa will be connected through satellites and air fiber. There's a whole bunch of technology coming to first connect everybody. Yeah. And then from there, um, we will need content. We will need content as to what and how and things that need to be fixed and whatever and start directing so the opportunities will be laid out lots of lots of jobs lots of training and skills transfer will happen so yeah. tech will be the enabler it allows us to get to identify those youth it helps us to identify what kind of skills that they would need and impart those skills so that that it, it's it Quite of a neat package, but you have to understand that it's the the analog generation of leaders. And and I must say, there is a two or three African leaders which uh, I have the greatest respect for because they are starting to 
understand that this is how this works and they're um, and they're allowing the tech to happen and, um, and and that's a good start but you know we need to do more so the kind of projects that we're doing at least is vital and, and we've approached the youth and said I've got 25 million jobs are you ready and they're all gung-ho and they said okay where do we start and I said well skills training don't don't it's it's not going to happen overnight and you can't take a shortcut I'm going to going to learn how to run certain things you must learn how to run certain things you can't just read it from a book and think that it's all going to happen so there's a, a commitment to learning but then there's a commitment to a future and on that basis we're finding that there's a lot of youth who are keen and who have never had that opportunity so we're talking about the largest skills transfer yeah. i think in the world here but we have to do that i mean in a decade, in less than a decade, we will Africa will be the largest country in the world. We'll surpass China. We'll surpass India. Uh, we have a youth organization. If you look in Asia, Asia's lots of older people. If there's no youth coming up, so their foundation is shaky. Ours is strong. We just need to someone is and carve it and and skill it up, and we will we will be the top country. We will be. Yeah, it goes back to what you asked me before. What excites me about Africa, the fact that Africa will be the top country in the world. Well, that's what excites them. That's really amazing. Uh, one of the challenges that I particularly have seen is uh, just the difficulties of older generations who have got amazing experiences and skills, but they're just not transferring their skills to younger generations. And I know you've been involved a bit in trying to get groups of younger people in Africa to do some sort of mentorship and then skills transfer and how's that been going and what would be your message to to your compatriots who have had all these global experiences and the young people out there were waiting to to embrace uh, the learning and also the the skills transfer yeah I mean I, I'm I've been nominated for the top what they call ecosystem builder in Africa for 2022 top mentor for entrepreneurs and top business advisor because I have brought kind of innovation to the entrepreneur uh, sector I'm currently have almost 400 entrepreneurs set up that I mentor through things like whatsapp and yeah. and and, yeah. and remotely it's got it's growing very fast um and Entrepreneurs are really going to be the lifeblood of, of, of Africa. They bring innovation. However, the, 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 what I'm encountering is people think, oh, they, they watch and they hear all these stories of huge wealth and that type of thing, and they think that it just happened very easily. They haven't associated the hard work and the long hours and everything else that it takes to, to do that. So we have to not go back to ground zero, but we have to spread that ethos uh, of entrepreneurship because with that comes innovation, with that understanding of finance, with all of that kind of stuff. To help with that, uh, I'm in the process now of going to school. I'm registered to, to become a high-level venture capitalist. I have three different funds who have approached and said, okay, you, you're good on your projects and everything, but we want to give you all this money and you can help the development of Africa. Dude, fantastic, right? So I'm, I'm able to now really put the money where the, where the mouth is. Yeah. So I have access to literally unlimited amounts of funding coming up. I still have to go through all the, the process. But should that be successful, I will be able to um, really give a boost to these to the youngsters, and I fully intend to do that. And I want to, I think similar to you, we want to introduce robotics and coding and project management and, and all those skills. So we're in the process of moving from the old industrial curriculum for schools, which taught the kids to be workers to transform them into thinkers and innovators that's where the big it'll take a time but that's where the big change the shift will come is by changing our 
curriculum to, to thinkers. And the progress on that, I've now worked with other groups and we've managed to put aquaponics in the curriculum in two African countries. So that is a wonderful signal to say, yes, we as the education department recognize that agriculture and growing your own food is an essential part of surviving. So now it's going to be in the curriculum. So that wave of, of youth will be well-equipped. At least we know they'll be able to feed themselves. That's a great start. If we, if we, if we continue that, then we're good. So things like robotic and coding and applications and tech, uh, all that stuff we will need to. So we'll, we'll do that on a, on a really on a mass scale. So I'm very hopeful with that um, combined with the money and the infrastructure and really I'm asking the analog leaders to please share, you know, kind of get out of the way, you know, share, but this is coming and there's not much they can do to slow it down. So if the, the youth must be patient, but they must be diligent. I mean, I will help anybody that tries, but if you don't try, I'm not interested. You need to have that commitment. Did you, I know you work in quite a couple of African countries, but at some point you decided you wanted to come and also stay in Eswatini. As, as we're wrapping up on this, I'm just thinking, what, what attracts you also to this country? What do you like about Eswatini? And uh, yeah. Well, first and foremost, the, I find that the electricity system here yeah. is fantastic. I mean, when the power does go out, 45 minutes later or less, it's back on. And that's significant from an African perspective. <laughs> you can't do anything without that, right? Yeah. In in South Africa and, and other countries, but at this point in South Africa, yeah. if the power goes out, you won't see it for the next four days. Yeah. Yeah. How can you work like that? Yeah. Right. The crime level is, I wouldn't say non-existent here, but it is less which gives me comfort to be able to raise my son in a peaceful environment without having to work about crime. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Al. This has been incredible. Um, one parting short to African leaders as we look at uh, a revolution that is uh, unstoppable in terms of technology, as we look at confronting, you know, our post-COVID situations, as we look at all the troubles going on around the world, what would be your parting shot to African leaders on what they need to do to be able to take Africa forward? Open your mind. You must open your mind and share. You know, power is in the people. And if you try to hold back and, and, and hold that market, it will not end up nice. Chief Becker. <laughs> It's been incredible. Now, thank you so very much. Thank you for coming in and uh, sharing a cup of the reservation yeah. tea as well. I've told you really liked it. Yeah. Um, I have like I'm a serious connector, and uh, I have like a whole library of of teas, and uh, I'm growing this you now to just captivate teas from all over Africa and stuff like that. If our viewers are watching, please I'll give you my number. If you have an interesting tea from your country, please get in touch with me. I would love to have it. Thank you so much, Al. It's been incredible. And uh, thank you so much for coming through to the Incubate podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Perfect. Right. That went well. Excellent.